0: we think about this text today in this passage of Scripture, um, I've shared with you before that growing up, there was a someone in my life who was fascinated with the end times. And I can remember constant discussion in our home about the coming of Christ and what that would mean. I can remember going to revival after revival as a kid and waiting after the revival was over for uh, hours as they would discuss and talk about end times. And this was this was my this was my stepdad. And I can remember watching constant programming in our home on television and books. On our bookshelf, all about the end times, constant pondering. I can remember when I was not wanting to go to church, and I, I didn't want to go and, and be among uh, the people of God. I didn't want to go and participate. I just I didn't find it compelling. I can remember him telling me that I needed to take it seriously because I would not graduate high school before Jesus returned at the same time in that season of his life he was an abusive man he was a man that was addicted to drugs he was a man who was unfaithful to my mom he was a man with a harsh temper and foul language and i have i've made peace with him and i i, I feel like in the late seasons of his life he's in a much better place but His fascination with the return of Christ had no visible impact on his character. His belief about what was going to happen and when it was going to happen that he constantly wanted to talk about came off more as just a good mystery that he wanted to solve because there was nothing in his heart or in his life that could be visibly seen by others Where this doctrine or this idea of the return of Jesus made any difference to him. And I believe by this passage that we're reading today that Peter wrote to the church that he is pressing upon us two things. One, that the false teachers in his day were wrong. Those that said Christ would not return, they were wrong. Christ is going to return there will be a second advent. He will return for His church and to judge the world. And Peter is saying that should change how you live. That reality must make a difference in your life. He's posing the question to us. If you believe that, what are you doing about it? If you believe that, how is that reality changing how you think and how you live because it should be if you're a note taker and you took one of the worship guides this morning we're going to start with this life truth in your handout the promise of the second advent of Jesus is not intended for mere speculation or fascination it should have a practical and significant influence on the life of a true believer. The end times is not, it's not about just selling books. It's not about good discussion and fascination. Biblically, the reason the end times are talked about is to cause us to hope in the promise of God that He will return for His church, for His people, and that He will make all things right and to stir us to a particular way of life in the shadow of that reality. So look at verse 13 in what Mike read for us just a moment ago. 2 Peter chapter 3. According to His promise, we are waiting. When Peter is saying, here's the cause of our waiting, it's that God has promised you something. He has promised that Christ will return. He has promised you that He will come for you, and He has promised that He will give you a new life in new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The description that Peter gives of the day that is coming is there will be a new, new heavens and a new earth, and righteousness will dwell there. Everything will be right as it should be, nothing, nothing will be wrong. Nothing will be bad. There will be no injustice. There will be no unfairness. There will be no evil. There will be no division. There will be no hatred. There will be no sickness. Everything that plagues us in this life in some way will not exist in this world to come. The Bible goes as far as to say that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind imagined what God has in store for his people, those who love him. Which means on your greatest day with your greatest dreams of what this new heaven and new earth will look like, you can't even fathom it. You have no capability in your human imagination to be able to see and understand what God has planned in this new heaven and new earth. We can't even imagine it. One day we will live in it. And so according to his promise of that, that that will be a reality, we are waiting. Which poses two questions. One, are you waiting? Because waiting there doesn't mean just passing time. It means expectantly waiting, anticipating, desiring, longing for that moment. So the first question is, is does that, does that describe us? And secondly, the second question is, how are you waiting? if you are expectant and you are anticipating and you are longing for that day that He has promised, what does it look like? What does it look like for you to wait? And Peter says in verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved and all these things are what he was just previously talking about, we looked at last week, but the heavenly bodies, the earth, and the works that are done on it, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness. I I liked the fact that Mike read a little bit of a different translation. I love the ESV, but it's a little difficult here because he basically poses a question and answers it all in one sentence. But he is saying, because of the reality that everything you can see is going to be dissolved, you should be living set-apart lives. You should be living... In a particular way, holiness and godliness. Every time I share with you about holiness, I try to remind you that there are two components to holiness. One is a separation. Things that were holy in the Bible were removed from common use. If it was a person or an instrument, whatever it was, it was removed from common use and dedicated to God, dedicated for divine purposes. Holiness means we separate ourselves from what is common to the world. And we are dedicated to God. And lives of godliness, it's lives that reflect Him. Lives that reflect His character. Lives that reflect His way of thinking. Lives that reflect what He would say and what He would do. That's what godliness is. And Peter is saying, if you're really waiting, knowing that everything that you see is going to be dissolved, your lives should be set apart, dedicated to God, and reflecting Him. That's how we should live. So yes, He is returning. And we should be expectantly waiting on Him. And here's what it means to expectantly wait. Live lives of holiness, live lives of godliness. I challenge you this morning that for us to really know what it means to reflect God, we must know God's word. There should be moments in your life where you go to say something, you go to do something, you're thinking a particular way, and a passage of scripture that, that you've read comes to your mind, and you think, wait a minute. I need to handle this differently. I need to grab onto this promise that I, it's in my mind right now. I need to, I need to grab onto this command. And, and maturing in Christ, I believe, is having more of those moments every day, every week of your life, where you're constantly being guided by God's Spirit from His Word. We can't live lives of godliness without being people of His Word so that we know what godliness looks like. Two guiding principles, I think, come from this idea that we should be expectantly waiting, living lives of holiness and godliness. When it comes to what does that practically look like, I think there are two guiding principles. I always think of our life in Christ where Jesus said it's a narrow path. Whenever I picture that narrow path that we're to walk, I always picture on either side of the path is a really deep ditch and if, if you're not on the path, you end up falling into error. And there are two guiding principles that I think should lead us, keep us from either side of this ditch where we could, or either side of this path where we could fall into error. One, the reality of the second advent of Jesus, it should not lead us to indifference for this life. The reality of the second advent of Jesus should not lead us to be indifferent about this life. There's a very popular phrase that a German philosopher named Karl Marx, who was an atheist, he coined the phrase. It's been moved along throughout time since then, but he said that religion was the opiate of the masses. And what he meant by that was for him, he felt religion caused people to be so focused on the life to come that they did nothing to change the world around them. And so for Karl Marx, he felt like it would be best if all religion was abolished. That would cause people to, to be more involved in the world around them. But I would say to you that the Christian ethic, the biblical ethic, is not to be indifferent to the world around us. It is not that our religion should lead us to not care about what is happening around us. And if we're honest, that can happen. We can get so pessimistic about this world and this life that our tendency is just disengage. Disengage from the people around us, disengage from the world around us. We get tempted. We think that the right thing to do is go into what you might call a holy huddle, build up big walls around your family to keep out the world and just live there and do as, the least amount you can to interact with those around you, so that you are not tainted by the world because the world is dying away. And while the world is dying away and everything is going to be dissolved, the reality is the Christian ethic, the biblical ethic is this planet, while it still exists in the form that it does, has value to God. And He has called us to be salt and light He has called us to interact with the world around us and make a difference. We were singing this morning and Sam said, make it a prayer, peace on earth. To the world, peace is just not having conflict. In the Bible, peace is not having conflict but having the blessings of God with it. We are the light, we are the salt that would show people how they can have true peace. And if we disengage or we're indifferent to those around us, then who's going to carry that message? Rather than an opiate to the masses, Christianity is about stewardship. In 1 Corinthians 4.2, Paul makes a very simple but profound statement that it is required of stewards to be found Faithful. The way the Bible presents it is God owns everything. He owns everything you see. He owns every natural resource. He owns every person. He owns every entity. The things that we do, the things that we create, the things we build, all we are doing is subduing the earth the way God commanded us to. We are not creating anything because everything that we are doing is simply taking what God placed here, and using the wisdom that He has given to form new things out of what He placed here. And we are to be stewards of all that God has given. And to be a good steward means you are faithful with whatever God places in your hand. That you see your whole life is coming from Him. Every person, every opportunity, every position, every job, every resource you have from God... And God, how can I be faithful to you in this place you have put me? How can I steward it well? That is the Christian ethic. So understanding that Christ is going to return doesn't mean we're indifferent to this life. All the more, it means we should be faithful stewards because one day Christ will return and call us to to an account. But the other side of that narrow path is understanding the second advent of Jesus, should keep us from obsession for this life or obsession over this life. So that reality keeps us from being indifferent about this life, but it also keeps us from being obsessed about this life. C.S. Lewis said that prosperity knits a man to the world, and in it he thinks he's finding his place when really it's finding a place in him. That when you're prosperous in this life, you feel like you're just finding your place. But if you're not careful, that prosperity is causing the world to find its place in you. We can become over-fascinated with this world. Just as we can get pessimistic about it and be indifferent to it, we can love it and be so optimistic and so thrilled about it, so obsessed with it, that it might actually seem to be a disruption to us if Christ was to take us out of it. That we don't necessarily look forward to Jesus returning and taking us home because we've made our home here. And we want to go to heaven one day, but we really don't want Jesus to take us away from this world. Materialism. When you're obsessed with this life, you're probably not a generous person. Because for you, whatever is in your hand is yours. It causes people to be greedy. It causes us to have fervor, to become obsessed with the affairs of the world. Where we become convinced that it's it's the structure of the world... That we can create structures in the world that's going to make everything perfect rather than looking to Christ to be the one to make everything perfect. It's forgetting what the Bible teaches, what Paul said, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, that we have a treasure in jars of clay. That everything we see, including ourselves, our own lives are decaying. That God has given us a treasure, but that treasure, right now, is experienced in jars of clay. Our lives that are decaying, and the world around us that is decaying. So we must, as we think about the second advent, be careful to not fall into either one of these errors. That we become indifferent or that we become obsessed. That we think we have no place to make a difference or that we think it is by our efforts that the difference will be made. God is calling us to a sound biblical ethic that understands stewardship and seeks to be faithful with all he has given for his glory and other people's good while all the time realizing everything we see will one day burn. There was one preacher, he was talking about that he was going on a trip and that his student, a student that he had, he was a professor in a college and at the time, and a student uh, overheard him saying about him going on this trip and that he wished he had a really nice camera to be able to take. Obviously, this was um, years ago. And he wished he had a really nice camera to take. And the next day or the next class, his student showed up with this really expensive camera that was his and he said, Here, I want you to take this on your trip. And the professor said, No, I I, I can't accept this. It's so generous, but I'm afraid something might happen to it. And he said his student looked at him and said, It's okay, one day it's going to burn. And the professor said, I've never forgot that. It taught me so much about how we should think as Christians as relate related to what we had. He said, at the same time, if, that, if I found out that that student took that really nice camera and at night he left it outside on top of his car to get rained on, I would think he's not taking care of his things in a proper way. There's always that balance. Be good stewards, but don't be obsessed over this world. So how do we wait on his promised return? Keeping those two guiding principles in mind that we must be careful to not be indifferent and we must be careful to not be overly obsessed. When Peter says, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, how are we waiting? And I want to give three thoughts this morning of while we wait on his promised return, how should we live? And I'm going to do these in descending order. What I mean is I'm going to give what I think is probably the least important first, and then the most important, last. Number one, while we wait on His promised return, I think we should enjoy the taste of heaven that He gives. We should enjoy the tastes of heaven because God does give those. We are to subdue the earth as good stewards. Part of subduing the earth is enjoying what God has given us. There's some passages that lead us to think this way. Jeremiah 2.7. Jeremiah was telling the people that when he brought them, the people of Israel, out of Egypt and he took them to a good land, that he brought them into that good land so that they could enjoy its fruits and its good things. Part of God's intention in giving the people of Israel, the Jewish people, their own place was so that they could enjoy what he had given. In the New Testament, Paul told Timothy that for the rich in this present age, charge them to not be proud and not set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, talking about worldly riches, but to place their trust in God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We should take the opportunities to enjoy the taste of heaven that God gives us. There is, even in this fallen world, a way in which God has given us pleasures, things that we can experience. And every one of those things, not only bringing us joy, but also pointing us to a day where that will be our whole life. A life filled with the pleasures of God continually. My mentor... I remember he used to say often you can, you can tell the intent of the creator by looking at the design of his creation. That often you can see how God has designed things and it will lead you to understand what he intended. And so when you find your heart leaping for joy in a created thing, it shows you God intended for that to happen. As a taste of what heaven would be like. I think. That we have to be careful in our day. And I won't spend a lot of time on this. But I think one of the ways in which we enjoy. God. Is in his creation. I was hiking a few weeks ago. I passed James. Graveling and some of his family. They were hiking and. And we stopped and talked And. James had all these leaves in his hand, and I just remarked. He picked up these leaves, and I said, do you collect leaves? And he said, I'm just astounded by the beauty of God's creation. And I thought, man, that's worship. It's worship to be able to see, not worship of the creation, but worship of the Creator to be able to, to see this is what God has made for us. If you enjoy the changing of leaves, if your heart leaps at that, it's because God designed to give you a taste of heaven. If music does that, a good song, you're singing about Jesus or time with your family, husbands in this room, we're to love our wives in such a way that they get a taste of the love of Christ. God has designed that. And where I think we have to be careful in our day is that we can probably get a taste of heaven, maybe a little, through technology. But I don't think we get enough of it. We live our lives sometimes inside with our minds preoccupied with these devices in front of us. And God has designed that the very sunlight... On our skin does something to our soul and our spirit to make us feel better. I won't charge you for that. That was all free. But we should enjoy the taste of heaven. Look for the ways in which your heart leaps. And realize God has designed those things for you to glorify him and enjoy. Enjoy him and get a taste of what it will be like one day. Secondly while we wait on His promised return. We don't just enjoy the taste of heaven and live that way, but we also we work to alleviate suffering. We are called while we wait on His promised return. We work to alleviate suffering, both temporary and eternal. My My thought here is the command that we are to love one another, that we are to use our gifts to love other people. This morning in the reading that Josh had us praying from, Luke 12, Jesus said, it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. How do you believe that? What great language that it is the good pleasure of God to give to you his kingdom. And then he went on to say in response to that, sell your possessions and give to the needy. In other words, knowing that you have a kingdom that God has given you and that one day you're going to live in that kingdom. Use the things that God has given you on this earth to alleviate the suffering of those who are poor. I want to give you a few passages. We don't have time to turn to all of these. If you want to try, you can, but they're listed in your handout. But I just want to kind of walk through what I'm thinking here from the Bible all the way back to Genesis 18 where God is talking about Abraham and he says, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Abraham was chosen to teach his children and the families that would come after him, the Jewish family, and ultimately all of that pointing to the church, that he would keep the way of the Lord. And the way of the Lord was described by doing righteousness and justice. What is right in how you live and doing what is just on the earth. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, God is described as someone who executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner. Those three categories were people who were weak. They were weak. The fatherless, the widow, and those who didn't have a home, those who didn't have a land, they found themselves in a foreign land. And God loves the sojourner, and he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. And then he says, So because of that, love the sojourner, Israel, and fear the Lord, serve him and hold fast to him. So Israel's told, Because this is how God is, you must be this way. When you get to Isaiah chapter one. God is rebuking his people. He says, When you come to appear before me, you're trampling my courts. Don't bring any more vain offerings. I can't endure your iniquity. I can't endure your uh, solemn assemblies. My soul hates your feasts. They have become a burden to me. All of these things are things God had commanded. Why was he using such harsh language? Because the people had fallen into sin. And so God says to them, Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. In other words, do righteousness. And then he says, learn to do good. Seek justice and correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the cause of the widow. He's reminding them of what? Who he is and how they are to live. And you get to Isaiah 9 and the promise of the coming Messiah. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. He will establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. The foundation of the throne of God. Jesus would be a man of righteousness and justice and He would rule in that way. And then James chapter 1, the church, the type of religion that you're supposed to have. Not all religion in the Bible is bad. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep yourself unstained from the world. What does it mean to keep yourself unstained from the world? Righteousness. What does it mean to visit orphans and widows, the weak, the needy, the poor? Justice. It is throughout Scripture. We are to live while we wait, seeking to alleviate suffering with what God has given us wherever we can. This is our call. Temporary suffering. If you have the means to meet a need, James says in James chapter 2, what good is your faith if you see someone who is in need and you can meet their need, but your response is, go in peace, be warm and be filled. He says, without giving them the things that they need, what good is that? So we should work to alleviate temporary suffering that is all around us. We should use the gifts and the resources that God has placed in our hands to help alleviate those who are in desperate need. I will remind you, because it is worth us being reminded of, that as a church, we have spent the last couple of years building up an adoption fund. There is, in our budget, sitting in our account, Closing in on $10,000 that is there for one purpose when God raises up a family that is part of this church that says, I want to alleviate the suffering by adopting a child and bringing them into our home. Our church is ready to be able to help financially provide for that. Because we want to be a part of alleviating the suffering of even one person. But there are many ways in which God has given you, personally, opportunities to alleviate the suffering of people. And we should be concerned about that, but it's not just temporary. What good is it to only seek to temporarily alleviate someone's suffering and ignore their eternal suffering to come without Christ? We alleviate eternal suffering by preaching the gospel. By sharing with people how to be made right with God. How to have peace with Him. We should do both as we wait. Because God has given us His kingdom. And so because of that, we can give to those who are in need. And then third, as we wait on the second advent of Christ, we should distance our hearts from the old and prepare for the new. We should distance our hearts from what is old, and we should prepare for the new. And what I have in mind there is the number one command, the first commandment in the Bible. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's worship. We live lives of worship. Which means we are distancing our hearts from sin. We are distancing our hearts from being obsessed with this life. We're distancing our hearts from things, may even be good things. Sometimes we need to distance ourselves from a sin that we're holding on to and that is holding on to us, and we need to be trying to kill that sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. But sometimes we just need to distance ourselves from something that's good, that has taken root in our lives in such a way that it's become an idol. That we love it more than we love God that we think we need it more than we need God. We prepare for the life to come. Peter says in verse 11, Since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness? If you are looking forward to this world to come where righteousness dwells, should your life not reflect that. If you are to say, I am looking forward to the life to come where it will only be righteousness and yet your life embraces sin, those things don't line up. If you are looking forward to the day where it will be only justice and only good and only holiness, then you're preparing for that. You're preparing for that by seeking to rid your life of that which is sinful, that which is not godly. Let's be, let's be really real for a moment. That's probably how we should always be real, really real. If you find worship boring and you say, I'm looking forward to the day where righteousness dwells, and I will live a life of worship. Those things don't connect. You should seek after in prayer a stirring of God and a heart for God that loves worship. And I'm not talking about just singing. I mean living a life of godliness. You should seek after and cry out to God that I want to find that compelling I want to be compelled to worship You. I want to be excited about being in Your presence because one day, that's the life that I'm looking forward to. I think the way the Bible talks about eternity, look this we're not going to be sitting on clouds with wings playing harps. There is going to be a tangible reality, a tangible world. You're going to feel a breeze. You're going to you're going to see newly created things i think will probably work will serve but we will do so somehow completely immersed in the presence of god worshiping him continually so we prepare for that now if our lives are marked by one day a week where we come in and worship for an hour and a half but the rest of our lives like there's there's really nothing going on in worship we're not preparing for eternity And if we're putting our hopes and our dreams and our joy in only created things, we're not preparing for eternity. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness? Peter is saying, in the end, the only thing that will escape the fire to come is that which reflected God. We. We work here. We build things. We create things. We do things. And our purpose in that, we earn a living. But our primary purpose, even beyond earning a living, is to love God and alleviate suffering, temporary and eternal. Because one day, everything we build will be dissolved. And the only thing left will be that which we did, that that we lived, that reflected God. So Peter's saying, that should be your focus. Not, you know, go out tomorrow and quit your job and go into that holy huddle we talked about earlier, but how do you now see your job? How do you now see your daily activities? How do you now see your stewardship of your children? How do you see what God has given you to do? How do you now see that as a preparation for eternity? To love, honor, and serve Him. Jesus said in Matthew 9, He was talking about the old system from the Old Testament, the old covenant and the new covenant to come, and He said, you don't put new wine in old wineskins. If the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed, if you try to do that, new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. He was saying, what I am doing, this new work that I am doing, cannot fit into this Old Testament, Old Covenant sacrificial system. There must be new wineskins for the new wine that God is pouring out. And I would say to us that for us to have new wine and to live in a new and fresh way, we must think differently about our lives maybe than we have before. This isn't about just changing a few things and trying to to take this radical life Jesus is calling us to live and put it into the old way of life that we love so much. This is about totally new life for totally new wine. So those three things for us, keeping in mind we shouldn't be indifferent about this life. We shouldn't obsess over it either. We are called to enjoy what God gives us. It's a foretaste of heaven work to alleviate suffering and worship. And I want to deal with one more thing before we end the message, and that is in verse 12. He says something very interesting. Back to verse 11, he says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Now that is interesting language. This is one of the many places in the Bible where we have an intersection of what we believe to be God's sovereignty and His control as well as human responsibility and how human actions make a difference in things. From Scripture, you can make the case, biblically, God has set the day for the return of Christ. Jesus said, when He was on the earth, no one knows that day. I don't even know that day. The Father does. In Acts, it talks about God has, we're waiting for the day that God has determined. So in a sense, in God's sovereignty, and God's control, He has set the day. Yet, Peter uses language here that says, living lives of holiness and godliness, you are waiting for and hastening the coming. Just as a way of how we approach scripture, I, I would counsel you, when you see in the Bible that human actions are meaningful and they're significant, and you also see in the Bible that God is completely sovereign, believe both. Hold on to both of those truths. Because both of those truths in God's kingdom are things that He wants you to know. But I think what we can say about this passage is that Peter connects the conduct of God's people to the timing of the return of Christ. He's already said this in verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And we talked about last week how he's referencing this to the church. So he's already saying that, that God isn't slow, but the reason that the promise has not come yet is because he is being patient with you, because there are people to be brought into his kingdom. And in Acts chapter 3, Peter also is teaching the day of Pentecost, and he tells the crowds, repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you. In both of those places, Peter alludes to the way the people of God, the way they live, having some impact on the return of Christ, on the day that He will return. I don't think that means that God doesn't know the day or hasn't determined it. I don't think that means He's waiting to see what we will do. When the Bible says He knows the day, I believe it means He knows the day. But when the Bible shows us that somehow God has graciously factored in the conduct of His church into determining when the end would come, we must also believe that. And so in some way that I can't explain to you fully, the Bible is telling us holy living hastens the coming of the Lord. So repent. Repent of your sins. Preach the gospel. Jesus said the end will come when the gospel is went to all the earth. Somehow the preaching of the gospel factors in. Repent, preach the gospel, pray, and know that holy living in God's kingdom is hastening the return of Jesus. Sam, I'm going to ask you guys, the worship team can come up. I want to think this morning as we sing together, And as we offer you an opportunity to be prayed for. I want to make this gospel plea to you is. How are you waiting? Think diagnostically of your own heart. Are you waiting for the return of Christ with expectancy? Anticipation? Longing? Some of us if we're honest we're not. We. We know Christ will return, we want to go to heaven, we love God, but if we're honest with ourselves, we're probably not anticipating that day as if we wish it was today. And I think we should be. And we should lay that before the Lord. And we should ask Him to give us expectant hearts that are anticipating His return. At the same time, some of us have probably gotten to a place where we're so pessimistic about this world that our waiting is a pleading with Christ to return, but we've become a little indifferent to those around us. We've become a bit indifferent to the difference that God intends for us to make, to alleviate suffering, to help people, to reflect Him. And I think we should repent of that. And we should ask God for hearts that long for His return and seek to bring His kingdom the salt and the light to bear in the lives of others, if God will allow that. And it is a call to all of us to repent. We all struggle with sin. And I, if I were to say, if you're struggling with sin, you should come down front and pray today. And one person got up and came down, we could all sit there and go, whoo, wonder what they're dealing with. The fact is, every single one of us could come down here and pile at this these stairs, and pray because every one of us is struggling with sin. God is calling us to live lives that are separated from what is common and dedicated to Him and reflecting His ways. And by doing that, we are waiting for and we are hastening the return of Christ. I want to ask our prayer partners if they will come, those who are going to be praying for people this morning. I want to invite you that you can pray For anything. You can be prayed for about anything. Whatever God has brought to your mind this morning that you would just like someone else. You'd like to hear someone else praying for you. You just feel the need to share it with someone else. It's a burden and you need someone else to help lighten that load. I want to invite you to come this morning and have our prayer partners pray over you. Not because they have everything figured out or not because they don't have struggles, but because this morning they have volunteered to serve in prayer. And I want to invite you to respond to the Lord this morning. If it is crying out to Him for salvation, if it is crying out for Him for Him to give you a heart that loves Him, a heart that is anticipating His return, or a heart that loves others more, cry out to Him. This season we celebrate Advent, looking forward to His second coming. How are we waiting? Are we waiting well? Father, I pray this morning that by the power of Your Spirit, Agape Church would be found waiting well for Your return. That we would be anticipating as a church the second Advent of Jesus, where we see Him face to face, and we live in a new heaven, a new earth where righteousness dwells. And God, in our anticipation, help us to not be indifferent to this world or overly obsessed with it, but to have a right-eye understanding of stewardship and of being faithful with what God has given. Help us, God, to understand how you want us to live in lives that reflect you, God, please speak to every one of our hearts this morning. Let there not be an ear in this room that is deaf to what you are saying. Let there not be a heart in this room today that is closed off to you. God, I pray that you would reach each person and you would speak to us, God, about our lives and what you want us to know today. And I pray, God, that when we hear your voice, we would not harden our hearts, but we would listen and we would respond. Help us to know what that response should be today, God. Let us cry out to you. God, if we need to do serious business with you this morning, let us do that, God, and not be ashamed. God, if you put someone else on this, in this room in our hearts, let us be bold to go to them and pray for them. God, if we just need to hear someone else praying for a burden that we have, God, let us, let us have the courage to come and be prayed for. Give us a voice to sing, God. We are in your presence. We're saying that this morning. You are with us. Let us behave and act this morning like we believe that, like we believe you are right now in this room with us. Help us, God, to worship. We love you in Christ's name. If you're willing and able to stand, if God has not laid another posture on your heart, would you stand and let's worship together and go before the Lord.